0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, the uh, the struggle to adapt to climate change, rising seas, and land loss around the American shoreline, as we know on, uh, on this show and on the uh, American Shoreline Podcast Network, is a big deal. Yes, it is. And uh, there's a place, I think, that is often overlooked by people around the country uh, that don't realize that the leading state in tackling this problem, both from a financing, financing standpoint, from a project planning standpoint, and from an execution standpoint, is our good friends over in the state of Louisiana, Tyler. And uh, it's always important to slow down and take a look at what Louisiana is doing, as uh, I think we both understand it's kind of a leading light in in what can and should be done in response to climate issues, Tyler.
1: It is, and at the heart of it, Peter, is the old man, Mississippi, uh, the great watershed of the eastern half of the United States uh, that empties into the Gulf of Mexico, carrying with it all of that soil, all of that water and runoff from the heartland, bringing it to the coast and and to a place where we have developed and dramatically transformed uh, to suit our modern needs. This is a place of conflict and management. And this is really the heart of of coastal management right there uh, on the Gulf Coast. People overlook it all the time, Peter. And the management techniques that are being developed on that part of the American shoreline are some of the most, it's kind of like looking into the future. Yeah. This is where some of the most researched and uh, far looking new techniques are being developed and today we're going to explore what that looks like. We are, there's a lot of
0: types of restoration projects down in Louisiana that are trying to figure out how to build and sustain wetlands, there's a whole lot of conversations around a topic that is the focus of this show, and that is sediment diversions from the Mississippi River and the role in restoring the Mississippi River Delta. As you said, Tyler, it's a complicated topic, and we've got an incredible guest today to help us work through that. Joining us on the American Shoreline podcast today is Rachel Rode with the Environmental Defense Fund, and she is leading uh, efforts from EDF Uh, She is the uh, manager of climate resilient coasts and watersheds. She's been involved in Louisiana for many years and a real expert to take us through this issue of sediment diversions and how those,
1: uh, those projects are coming together in Louisiana. Can't wait to talk about it, Peter. One of the things I love about the coastline is that it shows us how interconnected everything is. And when we're talking about sediment diversions and the connection between watersheds and coasts and climate adaptation, man, that's going to be a good show. I'm looking forward to it. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline
0: Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and nearshore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com geodynamics delivering solutions improving lives be sure to subscribe to the coastal news today daily blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the american shoreline like what you're hearing and want to support the network sponsorship packages are now available go to coastalnewstoday.com advertising to learn more Rachel Rode, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast, and thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to uh, talk to our listeners around the country and around the world.
2: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Excited to, to be talking with y'all.
0: So, Manager of Climate Resilient Coasts and Watersheds, uh, introduce us to uh, your work at EDF, and if you wouldn't mind, share a little bit of your personal background so our listeners get a feel for uh, who they're listening to today.
2: Sure. So, so obviously, uh, like you mentioned, I've been working in Louisiana now for, for seven plus years with EDF. I am um, quite a ways away from EDF, or excuse me, from Louisiana, where I grew up. I grew up along uh, the Mississippi River, but in the suburbs of St. Louis. So I am a Midwesterner at heart, but I've always had a, a soft spot for the Mississippi River. Um knew very early on uh, at a young age that this was something I wanted to work on, Um, always been interested in environmental science. And so I kind of kept through that uh, growing up along the river and decided to go to school um, in Florida for marine science, which uh, doesn't seem connected to the river, especially when you're from Missouri, but uh, found out in grad school that I could actually really connect my love of the Mississippi and also looking at uh, the Delta where its connection to the Gulf is. So really using my marine science expertise and my love for the river, um, I did my thesis on river diversions uh, and their impacts or potential impacts on uh, oysters in Louisiana and so uh, it was just a natural fit coming out of grad school that uh, EDF had an opening to to work on a team, a coalition in Louisiana, uh, to be able to support the efforts that have been going on down there since Katrina with this this group of NGOs. So that's kind of a little bit of my background, and I've been working ever since on uh, advocating and, and trying to make sure there's an investment in these coastal restoration projects that we hope will protect communities uh, from things like flooding and storm surge, and um, we're now expanding our work in Louisiana and, and all along the East Coast and other states in the Gulf. So um, it's it's a, an issue that's been close to my heart uh, ever since uh, I was little, growing up along the river. So
1: I love it. I love it. I'm a huge uh, Mark Twain guy, and so uh, the yes. you yeah. know moving <laughs> up and down the river and. Uh, all the way down to the Delta. I Just a, really a cool connection between the heartland of the country and the Gulf Coast. And uh, let's talk a little bit about river diversions. What are they and why are river diversions important for shorelines?
2: Yeah, so... River diversions are, are definitely uh, not a new concept, especially to Louisiana. They have been around for for decades in terms of, of thinking about this type of solution. So um, it's been evident to the state of Louisiana that this is a tool, uh, just one restoration tool in their large toolbox of other solutions. Um, and so... They, you know, have perfected the science over the past few years at looking at what uh, river diversions can do in terms of building or sustaining land. Um, essentially, what is being looked at, um, diversions are really just a way to reconnect the Mississippi River to adjacent wetlands um, that historically the river used to be connected to, but have been cut off due to uh, levees and other structures that we've used to help channelize the river. So it's it's really a way to kind of use the natural processes um, and the, you know, the river itself as a way to re-nourish wetlands um, adjacent to the river and, and try to build, allow sediment to, to elevate over time and build land. And, and hopefully it's a long-term solution against things like sea level rise um, and also protecting communities from flooding and storms
0: complicated projects that we're going to dive into in more detail. Uh, I do want to, if, for the listeners out there, mention the coalition uh, that you uh, referred to, uh, the Restore the Mississippi River Delta Coalition, uh, led by our very good friend, Tyler, and, and host of the Delta Dispatches podcast on ASPN, Simone Milaz. Uh, this organization includes the Environmental Defense Fund, National Audubon Society, the National Wildlife Federation, a bunch of expert groups that participate constructively in the planning of the future, restoration projects for Louisiana. And I just want to put that on the record. Uh, Rachel, would you like to say anything else about the the, the Restore the Mississippi Delta Coalition? Really an important uh, and effective organizational group. I'm really proud, proud to have you guys on the show.
2: Yeah, it's it's been a pleasure uh, being a part of the coalition. It's, it's amazing to see Five groups come together, um, still obviously having the individual traits of each organization, but really being collaborative. Um, and over the years, successful at just helping guide the state with the latest science and research, and helping them, um, you know, advocate for investment and in funding um, to really be successful and implement these projects. And and we're able to kind of act as a liaison between the state and the communities in Louisiana and really bring everyone to the table um, to advance restoration and and hopefully keep Louisiana, Louisiana around for, um, for future generations.
0: And I should also mention the coalition to restore coastal Louisiana is part of that organization and the Pontchartrain conservancy two other really great organizations uh, all getting credit for the work. Um, we, you know, when we think about coastal restoration in in uh, Louisiana, Tyler, I you know the first thing that comes to mind for me is the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority, the CPRA, which is the uh, the main state organization instrument in the government that that uh, uh, undertakes these plans and undertakes the restoration program for the state. Uh, Rachel, introduce us, if you would, and our listeners around the country to the CPRA and their role.
2: They've been really integral uh, in, in being able to have the authority, right? Uh, that's important uh, to, to move forward on, on things like coastal protection and restoration. I think we're seeing, especially in other states, that something like CPRA is, is really vital to have a central agency within the state that's solely focused on funneling uh, you know, federal funding to Projects throughout the state, um, but also being able to generate the latest science and research and collaborating with folks like us at the coalition um, and being able to bring communities to the table as well to this conversation. So it's, they've, you know, they were established by Congress. And um, I I guess I can't stress enough how important it is to have a central authority um, agency within a state that really. This is their main focus. And what's great about CPRA is that science is at the mainstay of everything that they do. Um, they lead with science and they lead with their various plans. They have their uh, master plan that comes out every six years, their annual plan, which looks at how they're going to be spending their funding that they get annually. Um, and so they've been really able to communicate uh, coastwide the latest research in science and why restoration is so important. And it's, it's really important to have that, that kind of authority in a state.
1: Absolutely. And not just in Louisiana, uh, the CPRA, uh, as we led with is, is leading the, the nation in many respects, the whole, every, basically every state in the union that has a coastline is keeping an eye on what's going on in Louisiana. And I think it's just incredibly, uh, uh, important, Peter and Rachel, that we highlight the importance of the CPRA's work. Now, Rachel, I've got to ask you, uh, you've been studying diversions for a long time. <laughs> and and on this show, Peter, we've talked about diversions before. There's This is kind of a new and exciting place in uh, watershed and coastal management. And Rachel, could you talk a little bit about the the landscape of diversions, particularly in Louisiana, but but also if 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 there's an applicable example outside, we could go there, too. But uh, how how are these uh, diversion projects moving forward and how they've changed in your professional career?
2: It's it's um, controversial is the word that comes to mind, but is a solution that has been based on Decades of science, uh, like I said before, diversions have not been a new concept. Um, though they may be somewhat new to the public in in recent memory, they have the state's been knocking around diversions and the idea of using them for restoration for for years and years now. Um, so we, we really have a great historical record of modeling and and research to support that these projects. Can be successful, especially in the face of, of sea level rise. Um, and so, I think uh, you know the, the communication around diversions is difficult, right? It's it's something that we're is unfamiliar to folks, right? We don't have many examples out there. I mean, this is going to be the single largest ecosystem restoration project in the history of the U.S. So we don't have a lot to compare it to. Um, we have some smaller scale diversions that we can really use to to kind of see how those have played out and how operations have played out over time. Um, we have existing um, crevices in the river, places like Fort St. Philip. Um, we have the Neptune Pass, which is a, a fairly newly formed uh, natural crevice in the river that we're seeing uh, almost like mini deltas and land forming. So, right, we, we, we have those natural examples that exist. Um, and so, using diversion diversions as a, a tool um, to help build land. We we have that evidence that already exists and years of historical data to pull from.
1: Yeah. And it, we're also, you know, I've got to say, I I see a, I see a trend line here. The other thing, Peter, we, we talk about is uh, rewilding rivers. You know, I hear a lot about rewilding rivers and, and in a way, you know, because these Delta areas have become so developed, I forget what the statistic is, but you know, um, so many, so much of the population is right near the coast and frankly, near river deltas. These are where the boats would come in historically. We've modified these places incredibly and we have dense human populations and development near them. And so it's one thing to talk about rewilding a river. It's another thing to get down dollars to donuts and say, okay, you know, we have a city here. How do we rewild it here? And when when you're talking about the the mighty Mississippi, I'll say it again: the mighty Mississippi is an important American watershed, emptying out on the Louisiana coast. There, the ramifications, the reason why Rachel, you're saying it's hard to communicate about this stuff, is because there are going to be ramifications to uh, the human uses of the delta that we've seen because we're 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 changing it around. We're asking it to do something else for us now. And I I I think that this is, you know, in terms of the trend line of thought, I would I would say and I would welcome your your thoughts here Peter and Rachel, but I would say this fits into kind of the rewilding concept.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's using it's using the river itself, right? I mean the, the a diversion the diversions that are being proposed are not a structure that, you know, we're influencing the flow. It's using the flow of the river itself, the, the natural um, flow and discharge that's going to be happening, you know, as water levels change with increased precipitation and whatnot upstream. I mean, we're just using the natural process of the river. All we're doing or suggesting is being uh, proposed is, is just to use that flow to reconnect it to adjacent wetlands it, it historically was connected to, right? And allow the sediment in the river that exists naturally there, rather than dumping it out into the Gulf of Mexico, where it's of no use to anyone, we're putting it back into the wetlands um, to try to build some elevation and allow vegetation to grow. So it's it's really just um, kind of a form of, of natural infrastructure where you were having an engineered structure, but we're using the natural process of the river itself.
0: Well, it makes a lot of damn sense. I mean, I think people uh, generally, uh, coastal professionals around the country, uh, generally are aware that over the 20th century, we channelized and modified the Mississippi River to an incredible extent. And as you said, the freshwater and the sediments that have fed and built the Mississippi River Delta are now shunted off uh, to the end of the river out into the, the crow's foot. This ain't Mark Twain's river. You know, it's a, it's a different river these days. <laughs> and we've, we've met, we, and, and what we're talking about now is punching holes in those levees and re-diverting the river into a more natural braided uh, system of, of, sediment deposition. And, uh, Rachel introduce us to one of the, I think let's talk about one of the major, uh, sediment diversion projects that's, uh, well along in the planning at this stage, the mid Barataria sediment diversion project. Uh, if you would introduce our listeners to what that project is and uh, if you could describe it a little bit for us.
2: Sure. Yeah. So I, I alluded to it earlier. Um, the mid Barataria sediment diversion is, is, um, a proposed project that's currently going through what's known as the environmental impact uh, statement assessment. So um, any large restoration project that would be along the river is going to be a navigable waterways has to go through this process to determine what type of environmental impacts could occur with that project being implemented. Um, This is, like I mentioned, going to be the single largest ecosystem restoration project in U.S. history. So um, it's it's definitely a a new concept for everyone in terms of the scale. Um, And so the Army Corps of Engineers, um, which if folks are not familiar, is the federal agency that deals with all navigable waterways and is um, dealing with the uh, EIS, the Environmental Impact Statement process for this particular project um, in partnership with CPRA. And so this is a, like you mentioned, essentially kind of poking a hole in the levee system um, and allowing the, the water to be diverted at uh, strategic times to adjacent wetlands. So it'll be a series of, of gates that can be operated by managers um, depending on different stages in the river, um, whatever's going on in the ecosystem. Hurricanes coming along, they're able to actually change how the diversion will be operated over time depending on what's going on in the system. So, uh, I think too, what gets uh, confused a lot is is how this thing is going to be operated. And so, you know, that's that's kind of where adaptively managing the project comes into play. But obviously, you know, it, it's it's going to be only um, you know, open at certain points when the river is really high in the river, you know, the river's really high and allowing for that huge peak and flow uh, of water to be able to um, hopefully protect communities like New Orleans, right? When the river's really high, it's always a bit nerve-wracking to be in New Orleans when um, you could have some overtopping of levees. And so operating the diversion appropriately for a situation like that will allow you to divert that huge volume of water into wetlands um, where it can be dispersed. And... um, you know, the diversion, if if it were to operate at maximum capacity is about 75,000 cubic feet per second. I, I'm pretty sure it's very rarely ever going to be operated at that level. Um, that would have to be when the river is extremely high. Um, so which we know is not year round. Um, and so it's, it's, it's crucial to know that this thing is, is not going to be open at full capacity all the time, um, likely uh, rarely um, in extreme situations, but um, can be closed for hurricanes, can be closed during, um, you know, things like oil spills, if those occur, they'll be operated appropriately um, in order to protect protect communities.
0: It's a good idea, as, as you guys have noted, and, and uh, folks uh, involved with the Restore the Mississippi River uh, Delta Coalition have pointed out, uh, between 19... That, For the listeners out there, between 1932 and 2016, in the Barataria Basin of Louisiana, this is down in the Delta, uh, they have lost 295,000 acres of land in that region, in that area of the Delta, a huge, huge problem. And the loss of these marshes and coastal lands, a real threat to the upland communities, including the city of New Orleans, it really reduces the resilience of the coast to hurricanes and storm surges. I mean, I think we all understand the necessity of working to restore these wetland areas. And uh, as you point out, Rachel, the key feature of this and why I think it should move forward Uh, is the fact that you're building a gate that can be operated. Uh, This isn't a one-time decision to divert a chunk of the Mississippi River into a particular side basin of the Delta. Uh, This is a structure that is quite expensive in the billions of dollars, but will allow the management of the lower Delta area in a better way. It, it, It all comes down to this adaptive management concept. And Rachel, I'd love it if you could go into a little bit more detail about why that is such an essential component of coastal restoration planning generally, and particularly in Louisiana.
2: So adaptive management has certainly been um, around with CPRA for quite some time. Lots of the projects that are already on the landscape are adaptively managed and monitored, and CPRA from the get-go um, of every diversion that they've proposed or looked at, there's always it's always been known that there's going to need to be an adaptive management plan tied to that project, and it's no different for mid Barataria. Um, the, the current process they're going through right now with the environmental impact statement has um, outlined um, some of the adaptive management plan actions that might be taken. And there's still a lot of, of work and research to be done um, on the state's part in terms of what the, the plan's going to look like. But at EDF, we, we've worked for uh, five plus years now with adaptive management experts um, who, who have experience throughout North America on these types of huge, huge water projects and how you would operate them, but for changing conditions. So uh, that's where adaptive management comes into play, Right. It's it's exactly what it sounds like. You are managing and adapting to uncertainties that are going to be exist in the system regardless of of um, if a project is implemented or not. So, um, you know, in order to try to address some of these critical uncertainties, we put we we look at um, trying to put into place uh, adaptive actions or management actions that we have in a plan that we can then use when the situation arises. Um, an adaptive management plan is based on, you know, monitoring and all of the historical data and information that's been collected in the river, um, which Louisiana is, has been collecting, um, you know historical information on the river for for decades now we have great coastwide monitoring systems in place and have since the the early 90s so we have a huge historical record of what's been going on in the river and in other restoration projects and so um the diversion's no different it's going to have a huge extensive monitoring uh, program tied to it that's going to help inform how do we operate this diversion so that we can build and sustain as much land as possible, while also taking into account other management ob- uh, objectives in the river. Right. So, looking at vegetation, looking at fish and wildlife, um, but also trying to input as much sediment into the system as we can at the same time. And and no two years are probably going to look alike. And that's why um, an adaptive management plan is a living. It's a living document it's it's something that's going to be updated probably annually if not more and it's going to be informed um, with the, you know all of the research that comes out and that we learn from the system once a diversion is in place
1: uh, hugely important because uh, we're dealing with some real powerful forces here that are beyond our ability to uh, exactly control so we need to be able to take that adaptive approach and uh, the other the other important thing is that, this adaptive management concept uh, is done typically transparently. You know, in the case of New Orleans, we mentioned this. Uh, the case of Louisiana, we talked about the CPRA, and uh, it, it allows the public to kind of see what the management criteria are, how things are doing, how new data is being integrated into decision making. So, I, I have to say, I think that this is beyond just sediment diversions. Adaptive management is a is a great way to manage. Uh, coastal and shoreline projects. And tell me, Rachel, what is the current state of public support for diversions in the state of Louisiana?
2: It's um, it's definitely, I think there's a, a lot, still a lot of confusion that exists around diversions. Um, one thing that we actually tackled recently, um, so going back a couple years ago, EDF decided along with the coalition that we wanted to get Kind of a, a, a few folks from large stakeholder groups, right? So, fishermen, uh, landowners, folks who were not necessarily pro or anti diversion, um, you know, regardless of their view, we brought them to the table um, and, and tried to talk about um, diversions in terms of how do we actually operate these things. And so, we introduced the concept of adaptive management to these folks who have, have no idea what adaptive management is. And how it fits into the context of of how you operate a diversion. So um, we got these folks together, educated them about what is adaptive management. What does it mean for a diversion? Where do they fit into the process, right? Because adaptive management is not only going to be informed by science, but it's also going to be informed by stakeholders and the communities that it impacts, and, um, you know, at the end of that, we were actually able to get them to send a letter to CPRA supporting that, re- you know, adaptive management has to be a priority with a diversion moving forward, whether or not they were pro or anti. They, they recognized how important adaptive management was um, moving forward on any sort of restoration project, let alone a diversion. And so from that, we were also able to ask them, so what's useful for you as you know, leaders in your communities and and your stakeholder groups, how can what you've learned in this discussion be useful uh, to communicate to your, you know, your peers? And um, we needed some better communication resources to exist to actually explain what adaptive management is in the context of operating sediment diversions. And so, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Natalie Snyder, actually came up with the idea to why don't we compare how you perfect and make a gumbo recipe to how you operate a version with adaptive management. And, um, you know, I, I had a look like, well, I'm from the Midwest. I know nothing about gumbo. <laughs> um, so it, it's been a real journey for myself as well to kind of understand the process of how you you would make gumbo, um, and and the different stages of adaptive management, and um, so we we've been able over the past year to create some materials that we feel like are more relatable to folks in Louisiana, um, something they can take back and explain to to their fellow fishermen and fellow landowners. Um, and we've got a great response from that so far, and so we're, and we've been able to translate it into Vietnamese and Spanish, right? Because we know those are two huge groups in Louisiana that have a stake in this situation as well. Um, and, and being able to show that it's just been great to see the response from it, and and I think it's a really clear, easily understandable way to envision how adaptive management fits. Into diversions and where they, I mean, it's really important to know where they fit into the process.
0: Communication is key. Uh, these are expensive and hugely significant projects, both environmentally uh, and in terms of the future, uh, you know, health of the ecosystem on the Mississippi uh, coast. Uh, so being able to explain these complicated projects uh, publicly is such a great thing. And And I think EDF and the coalition really do a service uh, in that way. Um, you know, there's uh, what I I want to get to. Um, Rachel is <clears throat> there the state of Louisiana and the CPRA. If you look at the you know the priority project list that the CPR puts out, the projects that they are investing in to restore the coast, you'll see incredible. Investments, millions and billions even of dollars in uh, marsh restoration activities mechanically done where material is dredged and put into some sort of containment levees and planted. And there's millions of of dollars going into mechanical marsh restoration. Uh, This sediment diversion idea is different in nature. Uh, So rather than mechanically picking up sediments and moving them around and stacking them up and trying to create uh, wetlands that continue to, uh, be under the erosion forces and onslaught, uh, sediment diversions is using, as you're saying, the natural flow of the river and the sediment load that it carries to build marshes as has historically successfully done to build the entire Mississippi river Delta. Um, can you comment on this, uh, this differentiation between mechanical restoration of wetlands versus the sediment diversion idea, the state pursues both with great vigor. Uh, What do you think is the right balance? How do these projects, how should they fit together? Why is sediment diversion an effective and appropriate alternative to the mechanical restoration of marshes that is also occurring?
2: So the first Thought that comes to mind with mechanical restoration is obviously dredging. Um, it's a really quick and fairly easy way to see land instantly, right? We know it works. Um, it's an immediate, near-term solution. I compare it a lot to uh, beach renourishment, which is, you know, I'm, I'm here in Florida, and that's that's a, a a very popular solution because it it's something tangible. I can see instantly. I I can see the benefits of it but in the long term is not sustainable. We know that dredging is going to increase with time, right? It's going to take more money, more funds to be able to constantly go out, find the sediment and replacing and nourishing places that were historically dredged and and what a sediment diversion would do is kind of providing that longer term outlook. So we may we're not going to see it build land immediately. Um, and, And CPRA has been very clear about this. This project is looking 50 plus years out into the future. And, you know, when we're talking about sea level rise, we have to think like that. We can't think about, well, we, we want the instant gratification now. we want to see the land. Now what the diversion is, is that we need to build over time and maintain what we have, right? We know we're not gonna have the Delta we had historically, but if we can find a solution that can not only maintain the land now, but also build for future generations, that's really what a diversion is trying to get at. Um, And it's something that yes, is expensive now, right? We know it's billions of dollars to, to build this structure, but is gonna give us a greater return on investment 50 years from now than continually dredging and, and, and trying to give, give, you know, it's this sort of renourishment or mechanical engineering that folks are so familiar with, right? It's, it's something we have a history of doing in this country. And so it's, and it certainly has its place with many other restoration projects, but what the diversions, what's a little bit scary is we don't know what's going to happen necessarily. Right. And, And we don't have a lot to go of of projects at this scale, um, and how they're going to perform in the future. So I think that's where a lot of folks have the default to trust something that they are familiar with, but are not going to be sustainable, or uh, you know, it's just going to get more and more expensive to do these types of solutions um, if we continue what we're doing now. Let's find something where let's build something now. We know it's going to cost a lot. But the modeling and science and even the natural crevices that are occurring in the river now, we're seeing these solutions work and they're building land. We're literally seeing many deltas pop up um, all over Louisiana. You know, the Atchafalaya uh, wax delta is a natural crevice. We're seeing these solutions work. Why not build something for the long term rather than the short term, which the public never loves, right? Americans in general, we want to have instant gratification. We know we want to default to what works for us. It's a little scary to go to things that we're less familiar with.
1: But that is how we got to where we got. And so I, I do think that, you know, uh, in <laughs> we, need to, we need to maybe uh, change, uh, change that the way that we think about this. And uh, Rachel, I love that you have the science background here. And, uh, you know, I got to tell you, I trust you. I feel really good about the diversion science. And I do think it's the way of the future. And I can see why it would be challenging. I mean, what I think about is uh, pulling dams down. You know, here in Ventura County, where I currently live, uh, we have the Matillaha Dam. Peter, we've done a show on the Matillaha Dam before. Uh, This is a dam that serves really no useful purpose. It's totally filled up with sediment that should be on its way to Surfer's Point on the beach. But it's stuck. And uh, it's taken. This dam is still standing. I believe they're trying to get it removed by 2030. But this has been like a 30-year project. I know that out in uh, northern California, uh, up in the the northern border area with uh, Oregon, the Klamath River Dam Complex is being finally removed to rewild that river. Hugely expensive project. But what I see, Rachel, and 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 I trust these projects. I see what I see is. Is the beginning of a snowball. Uh, the 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 beginning of a snowball. It's maybe something that we can fit in in the palm of both of our hands. We're we're packing it together, and uh, we're going to start rolling this thing down the hill. And I, I want to ask you, what as a scientist, what what do you think the the story should be of turning these initial? You you kind of started with it with these initial little deltas that are forming. But what is the story that we should be telling? Uh, around the American shoreline to help people understand what's happening
2: here. It's, it's evident across a lot of the American shoreline is that um, these types of natural infrastructure solutions work, right? We, we are so used to using our traditional engineered, uh, you know, hardened infrastructure solutions, which pieces of the diversion certainly are. um, But Harnessing the power of nature, the ability it has to protect us and our shoreline, is is really, I think, the diversion is going to hopefully um, be a great example for that at, at the scale that it's going to be implemented. Um, but with so many examples across the country of where these types of solutions work. And I think it's evident we can't, we as humans cannot hold back the mighty Mississippi um like i said we're we're already seeing examples of where it is busting through um in the delta and in places where the river just can't be contained and it's we're seeing this land pop up in 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 people's lifetimes it's not taking years um so so that i guess would be my message is is we're seeing these natural infrastructure type solutions really, really working and harnessing nature, using it rather than trying to work against it. We we know we can't keep water out, so why not work with it?
0: Yeah, it's a great. I think it's a it, it's a great evolution in uh, in how we in America are beginning to think about uh, management of these natural systems and what we ask of our coastlines and our river systems. Uh, Tyler, I think that, yeah, the Klamath River uh, dam removal, the Bureau of Reclamation in the middle of getting that project off the ground, the Elwa River uh, dam removal up in Washington State. Uh, there are several in uh, of smaller dam removal projects in the Northeast. I mean, we're starting to see a rethinking of what Americans wanted uh, to do in the 20th century, which was to engineer our way out of water resource problems. Uh the Corps of Engineers operates at the behest of Congress. Every project the Corps has ever done is uh, something that is uh, uh, authorized and financed by uh, the federal government by the, through votes of Congress and signatures of the president. Uh, but it's appropriate that now in the 21st century, we're starting to rethink uh, the strategy of, of, of mechanically, uh, and as you say, engineering heavy projects, Um in these sensitive systems. And uh, I think that's great, uh, great news and an appropriate uh, trajectory for the country to to get on. Uh, but it's not so easy, Rachel, because as we know, when you start adjusting the system, it affects uh, uh, user groups, it affects resources. And I just wanted to ask about one of the key considerations that's uh, been raised about the, uh, the diversion projects, both the mid barritaria project and the comparably uh, uh, sized mid breton uh, diversion project that's also under development right now uh, it's about salinity when we redirect fresh water into systems that have been denied it unnaturally because of the the levees and the dams uh, we're changing the characteristics of these of these waterways and these these sub areas of the Delta can you speak to that and why that transition why that implication is the proper uh, uh, consequence to accept. Um, can you speak to this issue of salinity changes and ecosystem transformation that uh, many believe will occur here?
2: Well, I think in in the system, there's going to be um, you know there's things we do know and things we don't know. We we there's uncertainties that are going to exist in the system. Salinity being one of those. We can we can model our hearts out, right? But um, there's going to be critical insert, uncertainties like salinity that are going to be um, always something that needs to be monitored and considered with these projects. And and really, the, the only thing I can say is this, is this is why we're pushing so hard to make sure we have a robust adaptive management plan for these projects. We need to really see how um, salinity is going to change in the system and learn from it and figure out how we can operate it so that impacts to the system. um, You know, there's a balancing act. And and that's where adaptive management best fits is being able to to balance these different objectives like salinity and vegetation um, and water quality. We're going to use adaptive management to try to balance all those for the best outcomes while also trying to build land at the same time. Um, you know, estuaries, the Delta, they're the very dynamic, uncertain systems. So whether or not we have a diversion in place, the system is continually changing, right? Historically, the Mississippi Delta was was much fresher. And now because we have land sinking uh, in Louisiana with natural subsidence and we have sea level rise, we're seeing that saltwater coming closer and closer to the shoreline. Um, which hasn't historically ever been that way. And so we're, we're going to see the system change no matter what, whether it's, uh, you know, saltier or fresher. And the diversion and adaptive management will be able to be able to balance that. Um, and, and, you know, one thing I like to say about uh, that I don't think a lot of th- folks think about with adaptive management and, dis- and diversions is that there's going to be likely this, this turn-taking um, optimization where, you know, you're going to be operating the diversion, maybe for one year, you'll operate it for salinity. And then the next year, you know, you'll learn what you how when you operated it with for salinity. What was the outcome of that? How do we balance it the next year, maybe we operate a little bit more for the vegetation as opposed to the salinity. Um So it's kind of turn-taking a little bit and, and bal- this balancing effect um, over the years of, as we learn with, when we operate the diversion. Um, but I will just say salinity is always going to be an issue whether there's a project or not. Um, and historically, the system has been much fresher. And now we're starting to see the saltwater intrusion coming into play um, and becoming even more of an issue. So we're all going to have to adapt uh, regardless of, of how the system plays out.
0: I love it. I, I think you're right on. Uh, the fact of the matter is not attempting to address uh, the land losses in the Mississippi River Delta through uh, these diversion projects does not. The alternative isn't that everything stays the same. Uh, nothing is staying the same. Uh, the conditions that are creating problems in the Delta, the land loss, the loss of habitat, uh, the risk to upland uh, infrastructure, public and private is real. Um, Efforts have to be made. Uh, I am absolutely in favor of this. I think I want to point out to the, to the listeners out there, uh, you mentioned that essentially the mid Terry diversion structure is a spigot. It's a faucet you can open and close to allow uh, the, the, the redirection of up to 75,000 uh, cubic feet per second of Mississippi River flow just to put that in context, the average flow in the Mississippi River is in the hundreds of thousands of CFS, 400, 500, 600,000. And in storm conditions and and, uh, heavy rainfall conditions, even up into the Midwest, uh, the river can reach millions of CFS, seven, five, six, seven million uh, cubic feet per second flow. So to have a spigot that you can open and close and control that has the maximum capacity to divert 75,000 seems like a responsible and prudent initiative. And when coupled with this intensive adaptive management philosophy and understanding that it's all about the operational uh, exercise of this particular um, feature, that you can do the best you can to to balance these objectives. I, I, you know, I, I just don't find these projects fearful and I'm, Uh, Are you optimistic, Rachel, that that this the environmental impact statement process will will produce a positive result? And uh, when could this project possibly begin construction? Do you have a sense?
2: Yeah, so I'm very, very confident. Um, You know, I like I said, I'm from St. Louis. Diversions were not something on my mind. I didn't have a lot of experience with the Delta region growing up and and the more I've learned as I've gone through my schooling and, and started my career at EDF is the sheer amount of science and modeling that exists on these concepts of diversions is incredible. Um, we have such a history of, of really, really taking a hard look at what these restoration project types can do. It's it's not something that someone just one day decided to propose and here we are. I mean, it was, it was years and years of really thinking through is does this make sense for Louisiana? And with, through all that modeling um, that's been done, it, we've we've found out it it can be successful and I'm really hopeful that once we you know I hopefully see this in place that people will start to realize this is such a a, a better way to see our future than trying to, get that instant gratification, like I said earlier, of, of, you know, we know what works, but this is going to be for my great grandchildren and their great grandchildren of of actually seeing this thing operate over time and being able to adapt to sea level rise situations that we, you know, are inevitable. We know those are happening. It's happening right now. Um, As far as construction goes, you know, so the, the final environmental impact statement just came out um, and is, is, we are currently waiting for what's known as a record of decision to be signed um, within the Army Corps of Engineers. And from that, um, ideally, the project will be issued the permits it needs in order to start construction, and that could begin as early as, as next year. Um, this it's obviously it's a massive project. So it's going to take, it's going to take a few years to, to get it built onto the landscape before it's operated, um, but could start as early as next year.
1: Love it. And ladies and gentlemen, if you're looking for a high profile example of adaptive management, think about the space program, you know, before there was Apollo and there was going to the moon, there was Gemini and like figuring out. If and I think there might have been even been one. There was Mercury. Mercury. There were the Mercury Seven. Yeah, Mer- <laughs> I mean, it took. Mm-hmm. We had to start somewhere, and we grew, we developed, and uh, I, I want to parlay this concept with the other exciting, uh, another exciting, uh, transform, transformative uh, component that's that's entering the space, and that is. Uh, the millions of sensors deployed all over the ocean concept, Peter, that we were talking about at the uh, 2022 National Ocean Exploration Forum. And I'm just thinking, Rachel, how exciting it must be from an adaptive management perspective to know that we are on the cusp of not only the ability to engineer and construct an innovative project like this but to actually measure its results in a degree of granularity and specificity that has never been done before and that's the that's the thing that i would say is similar to the space program which was we yeah it started off we were literally sticking <laughs> sticking test pilots on the top of of big military rockets that's all it was i mean it was absolutely a a, uh, a, it was, it was totally experimental largely, but we, we built, you know, that builds the foundation upon which a moon mission becomes possible. And I think that when we're talking about the American shoreline, we should frame up uh, what we are doing right now as the Mercury moment of shoreline management. Rachel, do you have any thoughts on that? Do you agree with me or is that crazy?
2: No, totally agree. Um, I think, we get this thing on the landscape and the sheer amount of monitoring that's going to be done and the amount of data we're going to get. We're going to learn so much once this thing, I mean, and we're, we're currently trying to learn as much as we can before this thing gets constructed. Right. But the amount of information and research we're going to gather when this thing is in place is going to be monumental. And I think a lot of other um, states are, are going to be looking at how this, you know, the information that comes out of this is going to be, insane. Um, So from a scientist's perspective, I'm very excited about that. Um, And and I think Louisiana is learning at the same time. I think they're going to be getting a lot of information that's going to help inform other diversions. And I think it's worth noting that, you know, we're talking about one single diversion right now, and there are multiple being proposed and and another, you know, kind of shortly following this mid barataria project. This is a system. These are not going to be working in isolation of each other. They're going to be feeding off of each other, operating uh, with each other. And and so I think what we learn now uh, is really with this diversion is going to be informing how we do restoration probably all along the coast um, for decades to come.
1: I absolutely agree. And I just want to – Peter and I were uh, talking before the show about some of the politics of – uh, this kind of project, you know, and again, I'm going to look at the space program. It's a good historical analysis. Uh, the space program was really expensive. There was perceived to be kind of an existential threat with Sputnik. Uh, we were losing the race. We we really had to get into it. And but the, really, there became two critiques, you know, two ways to to politically break down what was happening. One would be, and I'm gonna call this the the optimistic perspective is what I said earlier. We're learning, we're getting better. It's about improvement. This is a policy of improvement. I think that's a really good argument. The skeptic argument though, is you don't know what you're doing. You are waffling around, you don't even have a clear vision. And I think that as as Americans on the American shoreline, when we look toward our own adaptation, I think that we really need to have that optimistic, particularly when the science is there, you know, show me the data, show me the adaptive management plan, but the open-mindedness to go down the road of, of trying these new methods, I think is absolutely uh, politically where we need to be. It's exciting. There's a lot of opportunity for, for ex- success and improvement here, and that's good for all of us.
0: Rachel, I'd love you to comment on that. I think uh, Tyler, that's a great point. It's about the willingness to uh, to to open your eyes to new opportunities, new approaches. They're not easy to do. Uh, Rachel, I, I, are you feeling like the uh, that the that the Louisiana leadership is is generally open to that kind of an approach at this stage?
2: I do. CPRA has been super transparent, I think, with with all levels of state government in Louisiana about what this project is. Uh, They've never shied away from saying what could be the the potential impacts, but also what can be the benefits. Um, So I do see a lot of momentum, um, you know, because Louisiana has been working on restoration for so long and having something like CPRA exist there is a lot more confidence for folks at the you know in the state legislature in Louisiana to really understand okay we, we you know we've seen all these other restoration projects that have been put on the landscape we've seen them survive after hurricanes have been hit they've been successful in situations of flooding events so we have this agency that has all this information and modeling and data and research and they've put a lot of they've seen that success in the past and I think Louisiana understands we need we need to we're we're doing something that has value and has a lot of science behind it um if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it does. And I want to point out for the record uh in the in the uh fiscal year 2023 annual plan this is the CPRA's Uh, Annual spending strategy, both on project development and project construction, uh, includes get this 1.1 billion dollars for their coastal coastwide monitoring program, uh, the coastal the coastwide reference monitoring system. It's called, but a billion dollar investment, Tyler, in this kind of big data collection necessary for adaptive, effective adaptive management. So Louisiana is putting their money in the right place by by really focusing. Uh, on that monitoring uh, system that they're building, Tyler.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And we will be watching and continuing to cover the drama as it unfolds. And I've got to say, I'm looking forward to it. I think that this is, uh, as we like to say on the Louisiana coast, we're kind of looking into the future for all the rest of us. And uh, when I think about the Klamath coming down out here in California and the Ventura Dam, I think about the Louisiana Delta. I think about all the lessons in management, the the costs the 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 impacts uh you know the the impacts that are going to be felt downstream from these projects and how those will be dealt with Louisiana will be a little bit ahead of the rest of us and that is to our benefit we get to we get to look at them and learn from it
0: Rachel how can listeners learn more about adaptive management uh, in the Mid Barataria Sediment Diversion Project and follow the work of EDF and the other members of the Restore the Mississippi River Delta Coalition
2: So we do have um, a website that you can go to. That's the coalition website. It's mississippiriverdelta.org. If you want to know more specifically about adaptive management and diversions, um, you can use that same URL with backslash adaptive management, one word. Um, CPRA themselves at the state level have a great uh, sediment Diversions webpage. They have very interactive interfaces on their website, specifically dedicated to uh, Mid and Mid Breton, if you want to know more. Um, and we encourage folks to, you know, if, if you're interested in wanting to know more about um, the coalition that we're a part of, um, as well as um, other restoration projects in Louisiana. We encourage folks to sign up for um, the coalition's emails to be informed on how projects are um, being implemented and their progress, and uh, more to come on the diversions. It's going to be, I think, uh, an exciting, eventful year coming up in that space.
0: Indeed, I hope so. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Rachel Rhodes. She is the manager of climate resilient coasts and watersheds for the Environmental Defense Fund, part of the uh, nonprofit organizations that participate constructively in the uh, planning and restoration of the Louisiana coast. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for taking us through what is one of the most exciting uh, restoration efforts on the American shoreline and explaining, uh, taking our listeners down the path of better understanding this particular project. We sure appreciate your time.
2: It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs>